You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. out for those of you I haven't had the pleasure of meeting. I'm the historian here. And today we're very fortunate to have with us Dr. David Christ, who is the author of uh, The Twilight War, The Secret History of America's 30-Year Conflict with Iran, which is just out, I believe, two weeks ago uh, from uh, the Penguin Press. Uh, Dr. Christ received his bachelor's degree from the University of Virginia and went on to get a doctorate in Middle Eastern history from Florida State. Uh, and he is currently a senior historian with the federal government and is also an officer in the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve. Uh, he has served in the past as an intelligence officer with the Marines, and he saw firsthand the war against al-Qaeda uh, and also the confrontation with Iran. I don't know if we'll get any personal stories or not today, but um, those, those might be worth asking at the signing afterwards. He did serve in the first Gulf War and spent two tours with special operations forces uh, both in Afghanistan and Iraq. He was, in fact, uh, part of the very first U.S. military forces inside Afghanistan. And in 2003, he uh, actually personally witnessed uh, some of the confrontations between American uh, and Iranian forces off the Iraqi coast in a very tense incident, one of the tensest incidents between the two countries uh, in many, many years. He's a Middle East scholar, recognized expert on Iran in particular and defense issues, frequently advises uh, senior government officials uh, in general and and particularly in the U.S. military, including several commanders of United States Central Command, the command that encompasses such uh, garden spots and hot spots as Iran, Iraq, the Persian Gulf, or the Arabian Gulf, as the U.S. government likes to call it. I think that's actually an interesting commentary in and of itself on U.S.-Iranian relations uh, and Afghanistan. After, I would say, after the Israel-Palestine problem, the confrontation with Iran is probably America's longest-running security nightmare in the Middle East. Saddam Hussein was a problem for a long time, uh, but it was really only about 15 years or so. The instability uh, in Iraq is less than 10 years old at this point um, and appears to be, if you take the long view, Uh, God willing, improving. The war in Afghanistan is only 11 years old. Iran, by contrast, has been a nightmare for us uh, for, if I'm doing my arithmetic uh, correctly, 33 years this year and counting. And and arguably there's no end in sight, and many people believe that things are getting worse as we approach potentially a nuclear crisis. So Dr. Chris' book uh, is an excellent recounting of the confrontation with Iran and how it's played out in 
over the last third of a century in military action by the U.S. military, back-channel diplomacy, frustrated more often than not, and also in covert and clandestine operations by America's intelligence agencies. All the elements of America's national power come together uh, sometimes working together well, sometimes maybe not so well uh, in the Iran problem. So I think we have much to learn, and I'm sure we'll have a fascinating talk. So without further ado, Dr. David Christ. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, it gives me a chance to focus on, uh, I think, one of the more interesting aspects of this book, uh, at least it was for me personally uncovering it, and uh, one that doesn't always get a lot of play in, in different audiences. And since this is the spy museum, of course, it focuses on spies. Um, there's always a little uh, danger. I, a major, uh, my professor way back many years ago when I started my, uh, my, uh, the doctorate process uh, advised me that if you're going to write a book, make sure that the subject uh, is about a, uh, something where all the participants are dead. Uh, unfortunately, this is not the case here. So you never know who you, you meet in the audience. In many cases, they're the primary sources themselves. So, When the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral William Crow, read the top-secret CIA memo, he immediately realized the magnitude of the crisis. The United States verged on the brink of war in the Middle East. Iran plans to conduct a massive naval attack on Saudi Arabia with the objective of crippling their oil production, the report stated bluntly. Over the past month, American intelligence had reported an unusual congregation of small boats manned by uh, uh, fanatical or fervent Revolutionary Guard sailors in the northern Persian Gulf. And recent satellite images confirmed the boats being moved by truck from southern Iran up to the port of Bushir. But Iran's attentions had eluded the Pentagon. However, this new report described in detail the number of Iranian boats, their target Saudi Arabia, and even predicted the time for attack within 72 hours. Crow held the uh, outline of a Tehran's entire war plan. How good's your source for this, he asked the CIA courier. He's a recent recruit, a Navy captain well-placed within the Iranian military, the uh, officer replied. That afternoon, Crow met with Prince Bandar bin Sultan, the Saudi ambassador to Washington. We have a tip-off of an impending attack on your facilities, Crow told the prince. We'll need to give them a warm welcome. On September 30, 1987, the commander of the Revolutionary Guard, 33-year-old Moshin Rezaei, arrived in the Persian Gulf port of Bashir to personally direct the attack on Saudi Arabia. The truculent former electrical engineer had long advocated a strike on Saudi Arabia or American forces, and after the killing of 275 Iranian demonstrators in Mecca two months earlier by the Kingdom's security forces, Ayatollah Khomeini finally agreed with Rezaei. The Supreme Leader approved a massive attack on Saudi Arabia offshore oil rigs under the name, appropriate name, Operation Hajj. The Iranian military quietly amassed dozens of small boats and one missile boat in the Gulf. As the day of the attack approached, senior officers in Tehran arrived to witness the operation, establishing a headquarters in an old dormitory building next to the jetty at Bushir. However, the United States was waiting. Just as attack progressed, three small jelly bean-shaped American special operations helicopters in, uh, discovered the vanguard of the Iranian small boats, and a hail of uh, machine gun and rocket fire sank all three boats and killed seven Iranian sailors. The ferocity and precision of the American attack stunned the guard, and the Iranian admirals ordered a hasty retreat. Reza 
and other Iranian officials immediately suspected somebody had tipped off the Americans. They had a traitor in their midst. William Casey was 68 when Ronald Reagan appointed him to run the American spy organization. The director of Central Intelligence did not radiate a James Bond aura. He shuffled more than walked, bawled with pronounced jowls. He muffled at times to a point of incoherence, a trait that seemed to worsen when he testified before Congress. But despite the, but despite the visible aging, Casey retained a keen mind. and He was a voracious reader and astute student of history. He viewed the world through the lens of the Cold War. And Casey did not see the Islamic Republic as an intrinsic threat. The Iranian Revolution had been significant, he believed, because it eliminated America's chief defender of the Persian Gulf from Soviet expansion. And the key case, he believed, was to find a way to bring Iran back into the, to the western fold of the Cold War. When Casey assumed the direct, CIA directorship, the American espionage effort in Iran was in a shambles. CIA station in Tehran had been one of the largest in the world during the Shah's regime, but had been largely focused outside of Iran, not internally. When Iranian protesters accused the American embassy of being a den of spies, a senior White House staffer wrote to Carter's National Security Advisor Brzezinski, it's supremely ironic that we should stand accused of so much espionage out of our embassy in Tehran when we've actually done so little. <laughs> Casey came to office determined to revigorate the spying effort in Tehran. It was one of the most strategically important countries in the Middle East, yet the CIA knew next to nothing about what was happening inside the country. If the Iranian government was leaning towards Moscow, Casey wanted to know about it and position American agents there in hopes of drawing uh, them back to the United States. In early 1981, Reagan signed off on the two, first of two presidential findings, essentially an authorization for covert action required by law, approving renewed efforts to build a spy network in Iran. CIA established a new office to run the Iranian operations inside one wing of the nine-story IG Farben building in Frankfurt, Germany. Um, this 1930s structure housed the Army Fifth Corps and also the Army's own clandestine operations directed against the Soviet Union. Langley called this new unit Tefron, uh, 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 a hybrid name of Tehran and Frankfurt, and began the painstaking process of recruiting agents. As Turkey did not require a visa for its citizens, it served as a corridor for those trying to escape the repression of the Ayatollahs. Ankara and Istanbul swelled with Persian expatriates looking to obtain visas to travel to the U.S. or Europe. And Turkey took center stage in the spy contest between Washington and Iran as, uh, as the grounds of, around the American embassy in Ankara became a favorite recruiting local for American intelligence officers. Captain Taraji Riyahi never intended to be a spy for Washington. At 40, he lived comfortably with, uh, in, this, uh, in a nice house in the suburbs of Tehran with his childhood sweetheart. He had a son and a self-assured eight-year-old precocious girl um, upon whom, whom he doted, often rising early to make breakfast. He was no lover of the, Islamic, uh, the new Islamic uh, Republic. He made wine in his own basement, he liked to play cards and enjoy life, and he had repeatedly distinguished himself in combat against the Iraqis and was rewarded with a plum assignment in naval headquarters in Tehran. As deputy plans officer, he served as number two man for devising Iranian naval attacks in the never-ending war with Iraq. In the winter of 1985, Captain Raihe traveled to, to Ankara, Turkey, seeking a visa for his own son 
to go live with an aunt in Hawaii. He wished to save his son from becoming yet one more martyr at the gates of Basra, lost in the killing fields of southern Iraq. A few days later, he met with an American embassy employee who introduced himself only by the name of Parker. Pleasant and nondescript, Parker offered to cut through all the red tape of getting the visa. Um, uh, he said it could be done quickly through West, the West German embassy. Uh, in return, though, Parker wanted information on the Iranian military. Captain Raihe uh, agreed to the terms, underwent a standard lie detector test to ensure he was not a double agent for the Iranian intelligence. While his son's visa was arranged, Captain Raihe officially became a U.S. intelligence agent. Or, as the Iranian commentators later said it, one of those who sold their faith and honor for the CIA's deceptive glamour. He was one of about five naval officers the agency recruited, as well as Army officers, Navy officers. Langley successfully uh, enlisted a diverse group of civilians as well, including a lawyer in the Iranian foreign ministry, local government officials, even an engineer employed at a chemical factory, all with access to the broad range of information needed by American intelligence. Relaying messages to these recruits proved difficult. Iran's a denied country. There's no U.S. embassy there. CIA smuggled in radios to allow the Iranian agents to receive most coded messages that came across shortwave airwaves as blocks of numbers. A separate provided paper cipher translated these numbers into individual letters. But communication uh, with their agents came more from the 19th century than the 20th century, and through the means of more or less invisible ink. Using specially treated pens and paper that came to life under the uh, proper solution, the agents would write on seemingly innocuous letters to fictional friends in Frankfurt um, uh, the details of their reports in between the lines or on the back of the page, and an agent on the other side would, would uh, bring these messages to life using a, a special solution. Hundreds of these letters traveled back and forth between Germany and Iran. One Air Force officer later admitted to send a, sending 110 letters himself back to, Tehran, to Tehran. Casey had another client, though, um, uh, dealing with Iran, and that was the U.S. Department of Defense. In the summer of 1981, the Pentagon revised its plans to respond to a Soviet invasion of Iran um, or to counter a possible communist coup. A key element of the Pentagon's new scheme would involve deploying uh, clandestine special forces teams to organize a guerrilla army and conduct sabotage behind the Soviet lines. And the military needed the agency to develop a network inside Iran as legally they were the only ones with the authority to do so during peacetime. Langley would build a covert paramilitary network um, that would serve as a foundation upon which the special forces could uh, fly in on top of. And the CIA needed to recruit Iranian agents uh, who could greet American parachutists in the middle of the night, uh, provide information on roads and bridges, uh, establish mustering station, um, and these sorts of things, rescue downed pilots. To manage this uh, new effort, the CIA created an organization given the nonsensical cover name BQ Tug underneath the Tefron operation in, in Frankfurt. And they worked closely with a small cadre of military officers at U.S. Central Command in Tampa, Florida. And BQ Tug uh, quickly achieved some success. It recruited more than half a dozen teams. Uh, including Iranian military personnel, um, 
uh, even civilians stationed mostly around Iranian Azerbaijan and northwestern Iran and astride the border with the Soviet Union and the most likely avenue the U.S. thought the Soviets would invade. Some of these Iranian agents' only responsibility was just to keep watching Soviet forces on the other side of the border. All this time, uh, agents of the Iranians' Ministry of Intelligence and Security, MOIS, were not idle. From the days of the Shah and Savak, the Iranians excelled at counterintelligence. The new Iranian intelligence service had been formed in August of 1984 out of uh, uh, several other smaller intelligence groups that sprang up after the revolution. And surprisingly, considering the hatred for Khomeini's backers had for the Shah's secret police, the MLIS employed a large number of former Savak officers. Perhaps one-third of those working for the MLIS had worked for the Shah, and they proved equally as formidable in addressing the security threats to the Islamic Republic as they had to the royal regime. In July 1985, Iran struck the first blow at the U.S. spy effort. The MOIS learned of an American spy ring when the CIA tried to recruit a mid-level officer in Azerbaijan for this BQ tug effort. Unfortunately, they approached the wrong guy, and rather than cooperate, he immediately alerted the MOIS to the U.S. recruitment drive. And at this point, things started to unravel for the United States. All communications with Iranian agents, including BQ Tug, were handled through just a few post office boxes in Frankfurt, Germany. Compounding this area, a, uh, era, a, uh, compounding this era, a single uh, clerk at Tehran pinned every letter written to all the U.S. agents in Iran. Um, each email, each letter was mailed from the same few post office boxes in Frankfurt and written in the same hand with the same return addresses. Alerted by the failed recruitment of the mid-level officer of BQ Tug, Iranian agents employed countless workers to painstakingly screen all incoming mail from Germany. And they couldn't possibly have overlooked this unusual cluster of letters to Frankfurt, some destined to suspects in this BQ Tug effort, all written in the same hand. In 1987, Iranian officials arrested two CIA agents in the foreign ministry, capturing the radios and the CIA-supplied code books. The agency soon learned of the security breach and changed the codes, but it was too late, and Iran was already on to their entire network. As a Navy deputy plans officer, Captain Raihe uh, began working with his Revolutionary Guard counterparts on this Hodge plan designed to conduct a punishing attack on the Saudi oil fields. When Iran began amassing dozens of small boats in Bushir, the CIA turned to, Re- to Captain Raihe for answers, and he promptly provided Langley with the details of the plan, including the intended target in the time of the attack. After U.S. Special Ho- uh, Forces helicopters descended on this armada in October of 1987, the Iranian officials, as I said, started looking for who might have been the spy or their traitor in their midst. And not surprisingly, the MOIS focused on those receiving letters from Frankfurt, including Captain Raihe. The MOIS was nothing but patient, and over the next few years, they painstakingly unraveled all the different tentacles of our effort. And in September 1988, they struck. Former BQ tug agents were easiest to track down. Many were simple peasants and uh, a visit to a dark holding cell with a menacing interrogator was enough to give up the rest of their comrades. When one talked, they would quickly roll up the entire team. When coercion failed, they would be pinned to 
cots and beaten on the soles of their feet with wire rods and months of solitary confinement in dark cells um, uh, uh, with waterboardings and electric shocks loosen the tongues of those who continue to withhold information. In February 1989, Captain Reyes' eight-year-old daughter bounded home from school. She put in her favorite video, Cinderella, only to discover the VCR was broken, which caused an emotional output by this rather spoiled little eight-year-old girl. Mother arrived home from shopping and tried to console her, and about that time, four men arrived at the front door. Serious and unsmiling, they demanded entry and began methodically searching the house while the captain's wife and daughter waited nervously in the living room. A couple of hours later, Captain Raihe arrived from home, tired after an hour-long bus commute from his office. Two security officers greeted him coldly and ordered him to accompany them. As his wife began to cry, he gave his daughter a kiss and quick goodbye before being placed in the back seat of an unmarked car and whisked away. Iran finally went public about the spy network on April, uh, uh, April 21, 1989 when Hashemi Rafsanjani, then Speaker of the Iranian Parliament and future President, announced at Friday prayers that several dens of espionage had been uncovered. He was repeatedly interrupted by a large crowd chanting, American spies must be ex- executed. God's decree will be carried out, Rafsanjani responded. A month later, in May 1989, Iranian state TV began a four-part miniseries about the CIA spy ring entitled Top Secret, Part documentary and part propaganda, the docudrama included tantalizing details about the long history of CIA meddling in the country and attracted large audiences. The show included interviews with those arrested arrested who described their training and even the use of the invisible ink. The series repeatedly warned Iranians not to fall for the CIA's lies. The only promises... Uh, the only promises the spies and intelligence organizations to, and their agents um, uh, uh, are to be realized are betrayal of self, treachery against homeland, regret, and sorrow, the announcer would caution. But for Taraji Riahi's wife and family, this was not a TV show, but a very real unfolding tragedy. His captors kept him in an isolated cell at Notorious Evan Prison. He was tried before a military special uh, tribunal, the proceedings videotaped. Standing in the docket, he repeatedly denied being unfaithful to his country. I remain loyal to Iran, he said, implying that the current Islamist government was not. And not surprisingly, his confession did not air on Iranian TV. In early November, Iran prepared to mark the 10th anniversary of the seizure of the U.S. Embassy. The government planned a massive demonstration in front of the former U.S. Embassy. Loudspeakers serenaded visitors with the confessions of the recently captured American spies. That evening, Captain Reihe was allowed a brief, to briefly speak with his wife, who ex- and he explained that he's being moved to another cell, usually an ominous sign. The next day, Reihe's jailers allowed him one last call to his family, where he spoke to a younger cousin as neither his wife or daughter were home. It would be the last anyone ever heard from Captain Taraji Reihe. The Iranian government used the anniversary of the seizure of the embassy to send a clear signal to, to Washington about the fate of its spies. Raihe and three other naval officers were escorted to the gallows of Evan Prison, and the next day the family learned of his fate when Iranian television announced their executions. Over the next year, Iranian authorities claimed to have executed more than 50 men, including some convicted for spying for Iraq and Israel. 
A number of the BQ tug agents who had more menial roles in the CIA paramilitary scheme were given minimal prison terms or allowed to, to serve out their sentences in internal, um, internal isolation, internal exile. The incident had a significant effect on Iran, and since the overthrow of Mossadegh in 1953, Iranian officials have been sensitive to CIA mischief in their country. Uncovering the ring only confirmed their worst fears about American attentions. The fact that the BQ tug effort was a paramilitary plan aimed at the Soviets was lost on the Iranians, who perhaps naturally assumed it had been part of a larger scheme to overthrow the, the Islamic Republic. For the CIA, it would be one of the worst disasters in the agency's history. The end of the decade found the CIA much in the same position had been at the beginning in Iran, with an intelligence network in tatters. Casey's ambitions of bringing back to uh, Iran into the Western fold were gone. And for Captain Ray Hay and 20 other agents, it required the ultimate sacrifice to help the United States. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we've got time for questions here. So I see Bruce already uh, with an itchy trigger finger. So if you just wait for the microphone to come, we're recording this for our podcast. Thank you very much. You described this wide range of U.S. agents, CIA agents functioning there. They appear largely to be military. How well was the CIA doing in other categories, of, such as technology and, and especially political? Political was one of the great failings. Um, uh, one of the objectives Casey always had for, for, uh, for access, I suppose, was to get senior political uh, people in the government. Uh, the whole objective was to find people, not only who would provide us information about what they're debating, but also a guy who might be pro-American we could work with. And they never really had great success there. Technology um, was not so significant uh, well, actually, I'll take that back. Technology was significant. We had pretty good sources um, uh, with uh, the Iranians uh, uh, when they were making their mines. The Iran started an indigenous naval mine production facility, and the U.S. had pretty good information on that. One of the military officers was the guy who, who uh, negotiated the arrangement to, for, with China to provide um, uh, anti-ship cruise missiles to Iran. Um, so obviously, if you got the guy who negotiated it on your payroll, it certainly gives you pretty interesting insights. But as far as the uh, politics was always sort of a failure. Gentleman right here. Gentleman in the front row. My name is Munzer Suleiman with Al Mayadin TV. I'm originally from Lebanon. Mm -hmm. uh, your book, uh, critical of the experience in Lebanon, whether the Israeli. Uh, experience or United States experience, and you were very critical of President Reagan handling of the situation after the uh, killing, uh, the attack on the barracks of the Marines. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, you mentioned something probably can be a sort of revenge, the uh, kind of the phalange they were recruited to bomb uh, Fadlallah. Can you shed some lights on, on, on this experience? As a whole, please. Yeah, I, I think Lebanon is uh, probably uh, – uh, I'm a little kinder on Reagan, believe it or not, on the Iran arms uh, sale than uh, I think most people probably are. Lebanon, I think, was a, a, a mistake in a lot of ways. Uh, as background, um, uh, Ariel Sharon had sort of a grand design where he would 
uh, with one massive sweep Israeli armor would, would get rid of the PLO, knock the Syrians out of Lebanon, and he had a secret deal done with Bashir Jamal, who was head of the Christian Falange, who would be the, um, uh, the Lebanese president, and they would establish a relationship sort of between the Falange and the Israelis. And they sort of deceive Reagan on this, on, on a number of points. Anyway, the Israelis launched the assault, and uh, the U.S. ends up intervening after the uh, death of Bashir Jamal and the, the massacres at Shatil and Sabra, two Palestinian camps. The problem I, I really had with the United States was one is, uh, a couple folds, one is we essentially fall back on what the Israelis had originally intended, which is backing the Jamal, now his younger, less capable brother, uh, as, as the legitimate government of Lebanon, which immediately put the U.S. At, at odds with the other parties of Iran's civil war. And the other problem is the U.S. was looking at Lebanon through the lens of the Cold War, uh, as if the, the Syrians were really a, a, a Soviet proxy, and if somehow we lose in Lebanon, we lose part of a fight to the larger Cold War. In reality, the dynamics in Lebanon weren't part of that thing. So the U.S. goes in there, I think, very naive into, to Lebanon. Um, uh, the other issue that happens is the Marines who are at, around the, the Beirut airport are there as peacekeepers, uh, part of an effort to try to, after Shatul and Sabra, to try to prop up what is a pretty much a Christian-dominated government, but uh, at least the intention was to try to establish a, a, a better order in Lebanon and get both the Israelis and the Syrians out. But the U.S. policy starts drifting more actively into the civil war as the Lebanese army and, and even some of the Christian phalange elements uh, start losing in their fights with, uh, with the Druze and the uh, Shia militia and whoever else they're fighting. The U.S. becomes increasingly a player in this to the point we actually start uh, providing a military support. At some point, we actually do naval uh, bombardment in support of uh, General Aoun's forces, uh, who is a, one of the Christian um, uh, still is one of the Christian leaders. Um, the problem is that whole policy gets slippery, and the Iranians sort of take advantage of it, see vulnerability in the Americans. They have a list of grievances against the Americans, uh, chiefly support for Iraq at the time. And you know, the thing I've always found interesting in the Iranians is they don't feel a need to retaliate in the same time and space as what the, uh, the U.S. does. So if the U.S. Is support, U.S. and the French are supporting Saddam Hussein in their war, what makes these peacekeepers in Lebanon uh, off the table for a reprisal attack? So, they, so essentially that's what happened. And then Reagan gets in this huge debate within his administration over what to do as response. And, and you raise a great point, I think, which is the, some of the, the calculations against the strikes is it just seemed just it was for revenge, not to achieve anything. That was uh, Weinberger's argument at the time. On the other hand, the intelligence was pretty convincing on who had been behind the bombing and where they were. And these two competing views fight it out, and ultimately Reagan doesn't make a decision. And uh, uh, so there is no response militarily for it. If I can assert the prerogative of, sure. of the chair and ask a question myself. I've seen it suggested that after September 11th, uh, the United States government really missed an opportunity to engage with Iran, um, you know, covertly, clandestinely, back-channel, however you want to characterize it, not publicly, but really engage with Iran over some shared interests that they really felt deep, both governments felt deeply about, i.e. that they didn't like the Taliban. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on, you know, whether you believe that's true or not, and if so, sort of what was the paddling below the water that, that most of us didn't see publicly? Well, there... Um, uh 
We've had, in my, my view, uh, two really serious talks with the Iranians, with, with Revolutionary Guard officers with good connections to the Supreme Leader, which is what you need. One was during the Iranian arms sale piece to it, and the other one was after 9-11. Uh, after 9-11, the Iranians, through uh, uh, some UN talks that were going on in Geneva, reach out to the United States and essentially say, we don't much care for the Taliban either. They had nearly gone to war in 1998 with the Taliban over the killing of Iranian diplomats. Iran was a little nervous that this huge giant was now wounded and the club might head in their direction, so they had a, a reason to perhaps try to to, uh, to work with the United States. And, and I think some of the Iranians, particularly the Revolutionary Guard generals that we talked with, did see a conf- uh, an overlap of interests in the Taliban. Um, Iranians offered uh, one of the early meetings with Ryan Crocker, who was uh, Ambassador Crocker, who was heading the, the, the meetings at the time, to use one of their, naval, their uh, ports to resupply our effort in Afghanistan. So there was a lot of uh, overlap, a lot of discussion, and I think it was pretty candid. But there was also a lot of backlash against these talks within the, the, the George W. Bush White House, and particularly within uh, Rumsfeld's, uh, Secretary Rumsfeld's uh, office and, and OSD. And a lot of it was a fundamental view that it, uh, any talk with that, that ultimately it's the regime is our problem, and that any ne- negotiations, no matter what the level, Add, added credibility to the Islamic regime and undermined our efforts, as, as uh, one memo specifically stated, to delegitimize the regime. So essentially, talking was counterproductive to our to our long-term goals of isolating Iran. And so, uh, and the problem is, you have a, a real fight within the administration. Uh, I mean, it's uh, and ultimately that first term, there is no resolution, and a lot of those talks come to an end when uh, President Bush gives us an access of evil speech, which the Iranians take as just an absolute snub and insult to these private talks. And they respond by stopping the talks, releasing a uh, uh, guy named uh, Hekmatar, who's a pretty nasty uh, fellow in Afghanistan that they had in custody, who's now a pain in our side, uh, and a lot of other things. So whether this would have led to some great uh, 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 rapprochement between the two nations, I don't know. Um, but I, I generally do believe that any time you can engage your adversary, it's usually to your benefit, and I think this was perhaps a lost opportunity. Uh, gentleman right here. Uh, Tony Capasio with Bloomberg News. I want to bring it up, up your Iran observations up to today. What are Iran's intent and capabilities to disrupt traffic in the Strait of Hormuz? We hear this, it's been over the last two years, they've been articulated over the last since the Twilight War. How how much improvement has they made in capabilities, and has their intent sharpened to actually use the, those tools? Well, the uh, as I describe in my book, you know, one of the first military plans that we ever discovered from the Iranians that we captured was a plan called the Goddard Plan to mine the Strait of Hormuz. This is in, ni- in the mid 1980s, so it's been on their mind for a long time. Um, Today, Iran has thousands of mines, influence mines, old contact mines. They have an awful lot of, uh, of uh, sophisticated – they have the, the capability um, uh, to do that. They have a lot of surface, uh, uh, surface cruise missiles, uh, anti-ship missiles. They have a lot of capability. So, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, fall back on what was said in open testimony uh, uh, a few months ago. They have the capability to certainly 
disrupt or shut it down for a short period of time. That's provided, of course, that there's no international effort to stop it from the very beginning, which I think there would be. I mean, I've always viewed the Iranians see that sort of as their uh, uh, option of last resort. Um, uh, If all else fails, if there's a blockade, at least that's the way they've traditionally viewed it, um, uh, is that it's you know, if they can't export the oil, that would be their last resort. But uh, to answer your question, they have the capability, at least for a short time, I think. Other questions? Yeah, right here. Hold, if you could wait for the microphone. Hold on, we're recording. Does the Iranian regime have any long-term goals, or are they basically opportunistic? Uh, I think the Iranian regime has... uh, um, I mean, I think they're governed by a different set of, uh, of, of national interests than we are. I think they're the, the idea of, uh, I think Henry Kissinger once said, they're, they're not a nation, they're a cause. And uh, uh, I think the, the revolution, the, the need to somehow be the protector of the downtrodden Shia across the region, I think these figure into their foreign policy calculations. I think they're deeply distrustful of the U.S. motives. Uh, I think in many ways they reject the whole concept of American hegemony in the Middle East. Uh, I think the Iranians just are, uh, I think they just are approaching the world entirely different from the way that we want. Um, And it's one from their perspective, I think there's a rationality to it. I don't think it's an irrational behavior. It just uh, runs in in many ways counter to American interests. Right here in front again. Oh, and then we'll get the gentleman over here. Thank you. Uh, can you shed some light about Khatami period, whether there was a missed opportunity between the United States and Khatami, who came as a moderate, and why it failed, to, that approachment? Yeah, and the short answer is yes, I do think it was a missed opportunity. You know, in my book, I recount efforts that uh, uh, you raised on where the U.S. missed the opportunity. This is one where I think the Iranians missed the opportunity. And I think President Khatami was elected in 1997. He comes in at a time of a year after the bombing of Kobar Towers that the U.S. blames on Iran. It's a period of very heightened tensions between the U.S. and Iran. Uh, Whether whether there would have been a war for a response or not is is unclear, but it certainly uh, the, the Clinton administration was thinking along those lines, at least planning for it. Khatami comes in and he sees it. He seems to be an absolute breath of fresh air. He is a moderate, as you said. Uh, he makes one of his early things is makes outreach to the United States, where he uh, there's an interesting uh, 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 message sent back through the Omanis, where Hatami essentially says, "We had nothing to do with Kobar Towers, but it won't happen again." <laughs> and so Clinton shifts his gears, and I think makes a concerted effort through a whole series of ways between him and, and Secretary Madeleine Albright to try to reach out to the Iranians and tries to seize this moment uh, around 1999 and 2000. Uh, and it, and it kind of culminates in a really odd uh, uh, potential meeting at the United Nations during the sec- uh, 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 UN General Assembly meeting where Clinton, after giving both Clinton and, and President Hatami gave a speech, Clinton kind of loiters around the anteroom hoping – uh, or trying to get Hatami to come out so they could meet, shake hands, and hopefully it might be sort of an icebreaker between the two. And what's unclear to me is whether Hatami wanted to do that or his handlers didn't want it 
or Hatami got nervous that maybe the supreme leader wasn't on board with this quite this opening. And what happens is Hatami ends up leaving by a different door. And uh, so this chance meeting ends. And ultimately, of course, Clinton leaves and nothing happens. And September 11 changes the dynamics. Um, and and uh, to me, it was it was a missed opportunity by Iran. I think there was a gentleman here, and then we'll we'll keep you running, and then we'll go back all, over, all the way over there. Hi, I'm not sure if it's in within if it's within the scope of your book, but could you talk a little about Stuxnet and Flame, and talk about whether the United States maybe received any inside assistance in pulling off these operations? Yeah, I, I really can't comment much on either one of those. Uh, um, what I, frankly, what I know about Stutznex is what I read in David Sanger's book. So, um, uh, you know, does it fit? Does it seem to fit into a pattern of this uh, sort of low-level quasi-war? It, it does. Whether that that app report is accurate, I, I don't have any insight. Okay, and up here, Laura's getting her exercise today. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, what was precisely the degree of Iranian uh, involvement in the Kobar Towers bombing? Well, what I uh, and I, I think I have a whole chapter on this book on in the book. Um, the the U.S. Um, uh, if you remember, 1995, there's an election and the new Republican Congress comes to to power. Um, there's a, uh, one of the things that new Congress does is push through a $18 million plus up of the CIA's covert budget for Iran, and it's done a very public way on the front page of the Washington Post, uh, very deliberately. And it's really for domestic political reasons, uh, you know, to tweak, uh, I think, uh, Clinton's nose a little bit. Um, Iran doesn't see it that way. Uh, Iran's ability to misinterpret what's going on in the United States is legendary, and and vice versa. And, uh, and so they see this as a de facto covert act of war. So their response is a very traditional Iranian way of doing business, which is through the invisible hand, as they call it, through terrorism, through indirect attacks. Kobar Towers had been identified at least a year earlier. Iran uh, does contingency planning, for probably a better word. They identify targets that seem like easy places to blow up that have an affiliation to the U.S. or the Israelis or, or whoever their enemy of the day is, and Kobar Towers was one of those. And they have a network uh, within Saudi Arabia, Saudi Hezbollah, uh, Al-Mughassal, I believe is the gentleman's name, who, who was running it. Um, and it fits in the way the Iranians like to do business, which is using surrogates who are reliable, uh, uh, and also it gives them, again, plausible deniability. I mean, it's tough to trace it back to Iran if it's a Lebanese who executes it. But the evidence I thought was quite convincing that of, of Iranian working with Lebanese Hezbollah meetings in Damascus to try to coordinate this attack. Uh, even a, the final bomb is actually made by a, a, a Lebanese Hezbollah who was brought in who was sort of a bomb-making expert to make sure that this thing didn't go awry, and they blew and the they end up blowing themselves up. Um, so uh, uh, to me, it was quite clear. The problem is it took a long time uh, to unravel this. Uh, uh, it took several years for the U.S. to really put all the pieces together. And by that time, Hatami is elected. So Cl Clinton's faced with this dilemma. Do we respond for Kobar Towers, or do we seize this potential opening? I think we've got time for one or two. We'll take here. Thank you very much. Uh, could you comment on the Mahdi in the, com in the context of the kind of apocalyptic vision 
Uh, are you at all concerned that the Iranians may detonate nuclear weapons to bring in back the Mahdi? Do you want to explain briefly what the Mahdi is and um, then answer the question? <laughs> yeah, the, the, Mahdi, the hidden imam, the, the 12th imam who, is, uh, who disappeared back at the 7th century or so, and uh, you probably know more than I, uh, and, uh, and uh, it's sort of their... You know, at the end of days, he's going to come back and, and, uh, and redeem all the downtrodden, um, uh, sort of a key tenet of Shiism. Um, whether uh, – I personally, I'm less concerned about that. I, I don't really think the Iranians are, are – I think the Iranians' prime objective is preserving the revolution. I think that's their single foreign policy focus. So I'm less concerned about that. Uh, about them uh, trying to bring the entire world down in, a, in, a, in, a, in this, this vision of uh, a fire. Um, having said that, I, I, I'm not real comfortable with the idea with the Iranians with a nuclear weapon. I think it, uh, it changes the dynamics out there. I think it could potentially embolden the Iranians uh, to do more covert attacks and things like this simply because they know the regime's not going to be threatened. Uh, that, I think, is, is a much greater concern. Okay, last question. We started with Bruce. We'll end with Bruce. Bruce Van Voorst. Uh, can you update us on the internal dynamics of the current political situation there? Is Ahmadinejad really the first, the top man, the big man on campus? Uh, how does he relate to some of these other leaders around? What about the guards? What about the, the, uh, the Bizarre is still a factor? Uh, gosh, if, if, if I could act, uh, answer that question with uh, fidelity, I would be the smartest guy in the U.S. government because the internal dynamics of the Iranian government are, uh, are just an enigma to, to the U.S. We, we don't have a great understanding of it, nor have we ever. Uh, it's, a, it's factionalized. There's com different competing interests. There's, it was by design a diffused government with different centers of power. Uh, it's, it's tough. I think there has been a bit of a change since June of 2009, which was the Iranian elections. I think some of the – I hate to call guys like Mousavi a moderate because uh, in our terms he's not. But there was always a little bit more pragmatic wing is perhaps a better way of saying it. And a lot of these guys, uh, Ambassador Zarif, who was the U, their U.N. ambassador here, people who have a lot of experience dealing with the West actually do a very good job representing Iran's case in many, uh, many ways – a lot of them have been sidelined. A lot of them are backers against Ahmadinejad, so they are uh, – and I think since then you've seen a tightening circle primarily headed by the Revolutionary Guard around the supreme leader, uh, which I think is potentially a, a disturbing trend because groupthink sits in. You don't have competing views. Ahmadinejad is not really one of those. His power base is the Revolutionary Guard, just like the supreme leader's is. Um, but, you know, the Iranian presidents have always been a thorn in the side of the supreme leader. Uh, uh, Hatami was, Rafsanjani was. Uh, it's why there's been discussion at least of abolishing the whole position perhaps um, because they, are, they can be difficult. In other words, they get in power and then sort of they have their own agenda. And that has been Ahmadinejad with the supreme leader. They're, they're not in sync at all. And frankly, I think the supreme leader clearly has the upper hand. I think Ahmadinejad at least internally is on the – is, well, he's term-limited anyway, but I think his influence is, uh, is perhaps not as great as it was in his first term. Let's all thank Dr. David Christ.
I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening.